However, verse 15 gives the second exception. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Right? And again, the issue here is that they would, they would be, be abandoning the marriage and, and entering into divorce. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister, that would be the believer, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Here's a clear exception or a clear time when divorce is sanctioned by God. In this case, in this particular instance, it is not the believing par- party who is initiating the divorce, although we'll talk about that in just a moment. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 31 and 32, and then we will be moving over to Matthew chapter 19 to look at some parallel passages that talk about the nature of marriage and divorce and remarriage, because that's the place we are in the text. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now over to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus again takes up this topic as the Pharisees question him concerning his stand on divorce. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse uh, 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Please be seated. Bad marriages abound. Divorce in our society and in our churches is epidemic. However, we as a church, both individually as Grace Community Church and as the church universal, are called to be different. The Word of God provides us everything that we need for life and godliness, including how we understand marriage and divorce and remarriage and how to help those who are struggling in any area relating to these. The Bible is not unclear about this vital topic, and so that's why we're spending some additional time on it. 
Jesus only has in Matthew 5 two verses, somewhat cryptic on marriage and divorce. And yet because it is, is such an important topic and affects so many of us, and because the Bible has much more to say about it, it's important that we take some time now so that we can firmly understand it and clearly understand it as a church so that we step forward in giving counsel, we step forward in helping others with a clear understanding of what the Bible has to say, because there's much bad counsel in this area as well. And when there's a misunderstanding of what divorce is and when and if it's allowed and remarriage and when that's allowed and what these things actually mean, then unfortunately it boils down to bad counsel, and we sometimes cause people to feel guilty when they shouldn't be or keep them from feeling guilty when they should. And so I'd like to take this morning to do the best I can to lay out the various views in this area and to try to bring the, the, the clear biblical teaching to bear so that we as a church will have a good understanding of how it is that we can encourage and counsel those who are, are wrestling through areas of marriage and divorce and remarriage or who are simply seeking to help their children and others understand how these things work. Now, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, and in that sermon, after dealing with the nature of adultery, Jesus moves to deal with a very closely related subject, that is, divorce and remarriage. And last time in our study, we saw Jesus take on the Pharisees' teaching of divorce and then bring the proper biblical corrective through his own teaching on the matter. And since that's been a couple of weeks, I want to remind you of where we went when we did that. In Matthew 5, Jesus, in verse 31, he says, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And really, he's speaking there of the, uh, of the Pharisees' understanding of what was true from the Old Testament text, and yet what they had taken, and, and really, they had legalized, they'd, they'd been uh, totally focused, as we see in Matthew chapter 19, on the idea of giving this certificate. And to them, essentially, all that was necessary in order for a divorce to be acceptable to God was that you have a certificate for it. It didn't really matter what it was for. You simply gave a certificate, and you were fine, and you could go ahead and remarry and do whatever you wanted. So the permissibility of the divorce for the Pharisees was divorce essentially for anything or pretty much anything that you wanted. And the condition was that you have a certificate in order to accomplish that and to be pleasing to the Lord and not to have entered into any sin. Jesus, however, corrects that. And he says the permissibility of divorce is essentially, except for one exception that Jesus mentions, another exception that Paul mentions later, there is no permissibility for divorce. He says from the beginning, it hasn't been this way. The reason they were, they were turning to Deuteronomy uh, 24 and saying, look, Moses said this is okay. And that's true. He did allow for a certificate of divorce under the inspiration or under the direction of God. However, Jesus is saying that was because of your hardness of heart. Marriage was not divine, designed to be broken up. Marriage was designed to stay together. One man, one woman for their entire lives. God hates divorce. We talked about the fact that God hates divorce because it's treachery in the form of breaking relationship and covenant. God hates divorce because it grieves the spirit of God. It violates the human spirit. God hates divorce because of the harm done to the children of divorce. God hates divorce because it violates the picture of God's love and faithfulness to his people Israel. And God hates divorce because it violates the beautiful picture of Christ's love and faithfulness to the church. And we also discussed the fact that God provides strength not to divorce. That's why we have the principles of Scripture. That's why we have the church of God to come alongside and to help marriages be strong and deep. And then finally, uh, several weeks ago, we looked at the consequences of divorce, and that was really in, in verse 32. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So essentially, to kind of boil all of that down, Jesus was saying this, Divorce... For any reason other than sexual immorality and subsequent remarriage causes an act of adultery to be committed by both the man and the woman involved in the remarriage. 
If a woman is divorced by a man for any reason other than sexual immorality and she chooses to get remarried, she is committing adultery and causes whoever marries her to commit adultery as well. If a man divorces a woman for any reason other than adultery and chooses to get married, he is committing adultery himself and causing whoever marries him to commit adultery as well. This is powerful teaching. This is strong teaching on divorce and remarriage. And certainly, as we saw in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples saw it that way. They said, wow, if it's like this, maybe it's better not even get married. This, this is a permanent deal. This is something we're going to have to stick with. We can't just get divorced whenever we want to write a certificate. We're going to have to stay with this thing. Well, yes, that's the teaching of Jesus on divorce. And the last thing we discussed several weeks ago is that divorce brings devastation upon the family. In every way, in every circumstance, divorce is always a result of somebody's sin. And so that sin has an impact on the spouses and upon the children and upon the extended families. Something that I've personally experienced and many of you have personally experienced as well. Well, now that we review the main thrust of Jesus' teaching on divorce... It is time now to discuss the biblical exceptions to the rule that marriage is to always be permanent. It is sometimes viewed as less than fully scriptural or spiritual to allow any exception to divorce. Yet the Bible is clear that such exceptions exist. This being true, we want to be true to scripture so that we might not go beyond what God intended in rightly seeking to uphold the sanctity of marriage. You see, we don't want to go beyond what God intended in reducing the sanctity of marriage. We certainly also don't want to go beyond what God intended in forcing standards that God does not enforce. Either way is to move beyond the principles of Scripture, to go beyond what Scripture says, and to move into error. So what we'll see this morning is that God designed marriage to be lifelong, and he hates divorce. But he graciously makes provision for the sinfulness of man by allowing for divorce and remarriage in certain cases to protect and provide for those who have been sinned against in marriage. I'll say it again. God designed marriage to be lifelong, and he hates divorce. But he graciously makes provision for the sinfulness of man by allowing for divorce and remarriage in certain cases to protect and provide for those who have been sinned against in marriage. Perhaps to sum that that up in a more simple sentence, God hates divorce, but he also hates sins against marriage. God hates divorce, but he also hates sins against marriage and against individuals in marriage. We have to hold both of those in, in our understanding as we consider the nature of biblical divorce and remarriage. So now let's look at the exceptions. One, Jesus states, and then we'll look at another one that Paul brings up, the apostle Paul brings up later on in 1 Corinthians. So the exceptions for biblical divorce are this. And again, the fact that there are exceptional cases in which God allows divorce should not be surprising to us when we realize that he is a merciful God and full of compassion. We are not to take a harder stance on divorce and remarriage than the creator of marriage does. So the first exception is this, divorce is allowed by the innocent party when the guilty party has been involved in sexual immorality. And Matthew chapter 5, we have it on the side of the one who, who is sinned against, it would seem. And in Matthew chapter 19, both, both of these we have from the side of, of someone who has uh, been sinned against, but there has been immorality committed in a marriage, and that person is setting their spouse aside. So again, in Matthew 5.31, where it said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, and here we have it, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Clearly, the exception clause exists. However, it's a bit difficult to understand exactly what is being said when he says everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. What is being said there? Let me try to 
paraphrase that for you, maybe on the, to give you kind of the, uh, if that exception is true, which clearly it, it's in God's word, so it is, what would be the reverse? What is, what is the opposite of what is being said? Or how would we put that in a way that would maybe help us understand exactly what is being said here? So perhaps we could say it this way, all right, for taking the opposite case. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife for unchastity, see Jesus said, Everyone who divorces his wife except for unchastity or for sexual morality. So I'm just putting it, what's, what's the implication? I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife for unchastity does not make her commit adultery because she already has. See, there's the issue. If she's already committed adultery and he divorces her, he's not somehow putting her into an adulterative state. She's already done that. Any other time that he divorces her, if she has not committed adultery, then he is actually placing her into a state of adultery, as we will see if she remarries. So that's the force of what Jesus is saying. If a woman has committed adultery and a man sets her aside, well, certainly he's not making her commit adultery at that point. She already did. But if for any other reason he sets her aside, then if ever she remarries, she will be committing adultery. So I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife for, un, for unchastity does not make her commit adultery because she already have has. And whoever marries a divorced woman, except for the case in which her unchastity was involved, commits adultery. And everyone who marries a divorced woman, except for the case in which unchastity has been involved, commits adultery. Right? And that's really looking at it from the flip side. If she was, uh, if she was in a divorced situation because the man was committing adultery, right? Then if someone remarries her, she and he are not committing adultery. Matthew chapter 19 says it this way: I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and here we have clearly the issue that remarriage is what is involved. When there is, if there's going to be adultery after there's been divorce, remarriage is the issue. It's not simply that, that adultery was an adulterative state was brought on the moment the divorce was given. In both places, we have the issue of remarriage immediately mentioned in the context. And I think that's clearly what Jesus was speaking to. It's, it's true both in the historical nature of how divorce certificates worked and how marriage was viewed. And it's clear from both of our contexts that there is adultery when there is remarriage, not simply when there has been the divorce itself. Because in Matthew 19, 9, what does Jesus say? I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The issue is remarriage when, if we're going to consider this nature of adultery. So again, if I were to put that in the uh, what's being implied, it would be this, to say it in a different way. Jesus is saying, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for immorality and marries another woman does not commit adultery. I think it's the clear implication and the truth of that text. If he divorces her and it was for anything except for immorality and he marries another, he commits adultery. But if he divorces her because there has been immorality and marries another, he does not commit adultery. I believe that's the clear teaching here, the clear teaching overall of Scripture in this, what we call this exception clause. Now, to bring some other uh, scriptural evidence to bear the, of the idea that if there is sexual immorality, and the, the word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19 is, it's often used for adultery, and yet it, it also has a broader context. Really, any kind of sexual immorality could involve bestiality, incest, other kinds of gross sexual sins that are involved, each of those indicates a violation of the marriage bond. And all of those are talked about in Scripture. And all of those, by the way, carry in the Old Testament the death sentence. Every one of them, those kinds of sexual immorality. So some say, well, he can't be talking about an exception for uh, adultery because he doesn't use the word. I think it's clear in the context that adultery is, is at issue, the primary issue. But I think we can expand that out because the word is used to have to really involve any of the serious 
sexual sins that are mentioned in Scripture. So God himself, as we saw two weeks ago, three weeks ago in Jeremiah 3.8, he wrote Israel a certificate of divorce for ongoing spiritual immorality. And so to say that this could never be possible or or that this, this... this could never be allowed for, simply doesn't do justice to the very nature of of what God himself uh, does towards Israel. Again, that's a spiritual adultery, but Jeremiah 3.8 is clear. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I sent her away. That would be the the, uh, the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes. For all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I sent her away and I gave her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, so she went and was a harlot also. Are we saying that God sinned in doing that? Even in, in dealing with the, the spiritual adultery, obviously didn't write, her an act, didn't write an actual physical writ of divorce, but there's the principle involved. She was spiritually immoral, and so she did this over and over. I warned her and warned her, and I set her aside. She was betrothed to me, she was married to me, and I set her aside on the result of it, as a result of it. So that would be our first indicator that there are other places in Scripture where there is this... Now, Jesus gives the exception clause. That would be enough. However, there are other places in Scripture where this is indicated. I think another very important understanding of what Jesus is doing here in making this exception clause obvious is that he is, he is providing for the issue of New Testament grace when it comes to adultery. In the Old Testament, if a man or woman was found to have committed adultery, what was the, what was the penalty? And really, sexual sin of any of these kinds, bestiality or incest, they were to die. And if they were dead, then what was the spouse free to do? Remarry. The Bible is the, the clearest thing about marriage in the Bible and divorce and remarriage is that when a spouse dies, then it is acceptable to remarry at that time. That marriage bond is done. It's broken. But clearly in the Old Testament, that's, that was what was being set up. You commit adultery, you've broken the marriage bond or the one flesh nature, the physical one flesh nature of it, you die. You have violated the command of God. And so then the spouse is free to remarry. But what happens in the New Testament? We don't kill people anymore when they commit adultery. We're not allowed to do that. That is not what we do under New Testament, under the the law of Christ as related to us in the New Testament. So what is a spouse to do when when their spouse is in ongoing adultery or has committed adultery? There's not going to die. And so is a spouse going to be asked to live for the rest of their life with this other spouse committing adultery or having done that? when there is no death penalty to take care of that so that they might remarry. I believe that's what's going on here. Jesus is providing a New Testament grace upon grace. Grace so that adulterers aren't killed, but grace also so that those who are being sinned against by adultery in marriage have a means by which they may, they may enter into another marriage without being condemned by God. Adultery in the Old Testament brought the death penalty, which would have released the innocent spouse to remarry since the offending spouse was dead. This exception here that Jesus provides is God's gracious way of helping the innocent party in an adulterous situation since the death penalty was no longer in place. Now, be careful here. Divorce in the case of adultery is not commanded in this passage. is isn't the moment that that happens, you have to divorce your spouse. It's sometimes viewed that way, but it is not. It is allowed when adultery has been committed. But as a general rule, I think both in Old Testament and New Testament principle, and even the very uh, principle of God as he finally sets aside Israel on the basis of her spiritual immorality, that he was patient with her. And that it was time after time after time as she violated that commitment that God remained faithful. And I think for, for a spouse who has been sinned against in this way, there's oftentimes it is, is both good and right 
to forgive and forgive and to seek to draw to repentance and seek to see the restoration of that spouse, even as committed adultery. It's not an instant thing where you committed adultery, we're done. Because that also violates the principle of New Testament grace. So I don't think this passage is saying the moment adultery has happened, you must then divorce. It is allowed for, and then it, 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 by implication in the rest of the New Testament principles, and really old as well, there's going to be working through those issues to see if that person might be brought to repentance, and then the grace would be extended by the offended spouse, and the marriage could continue. What a blessing. So adultery does not dissolve a marriage. It allows for the dissolution of a marriage if there is ongoing, particularly when there is ongoing and unrepentant adultery. So reading from the Grace Community Church distinctive, not our Grace Community Church, but Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church in uh, Southern California, says this, the only New Testament grounds for divorce are sexual sin or desertion by the unbeliever. And we haven't covered that one yet. The first is found in Jesus' use of the Greek word porneia in Matthew 5.32 and 19.9. This is a general term that encompasses sexual sin such as adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and incest. When one partner violates the unity and intimacy of a marriage by sexual sin and forsakes his or her covenant obligation, the faithful partner is placed in an extremely difficult situation. After all means are exhausted to bring the sinning partner to repentance, the Bible permits release for the faithful partner through divorce. I think that says it very clearly, and I think it says it in a biblically correct way. So that's the first exception. There's an exception allowed for divorce when there has been adultery, on the part of the, of the offending spouse. But there is a second place. And this is perhaps even, well, I, again, I think Matthew 5 and Matthew, Matthew 19 are very clear. There's much dispute over them. And yet, even if we were to dig into the Greek of both of those, we would find that the Greek itself, the underlying grammar, is not necessarily difficult. It's just hard to understand exactly you know, how, does, how, do these, how do these exception clauses work. And yet I think an exception or an allowance for divorce, and particularly for those that say you, there's no ground, there are no grounds for a biblical divorce ever, is even more clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So even if, we, if you're not sure, if you're not convinced by Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, the idea that, that there are, is a time when marriage can be, and, and God can be favorable towards the dissolution of a marriage, Matthew or 1 Corinthians chapter 7 I think is very clear. So go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10. Much interesting, very much interesting material here. We don't have time to cover it in depth. It would be good to do so sometime, and we will when we go through um, 1 Corinthians at some point. But 1 Corinthians 7, the whole context here is the wrestles that the Corinthians had with marriage. And if you think we're messed up, you think our society's messed up, because, I mean, we, got, we have very little on the Corinthians. It's, it's postulated that there were those in Corinth who had been married 10 times, 15 times, 20 times, and they were entering in and out of marriage partnerships continually. You have all these, in, these adulterous and, and prostitute relationships going on, alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where prostitutes are flooding the city every night, and the very, the very believers are being caught up in this. Then you have believers coming to Christ in the midst of all of this. They've got unbelieving spouses. What do they do? So Paul is dealing with all of the problems that we wrestle with and face probably to an even greater degree. So he's dealing with a church that's, that's wrestling with these things probably far more than this church ever will. And he has some very clear teaching on it. And, and studying 1 Corinthians 7 is something that is, is vital for anyone who's interested in, in what it means to be married, what it means to live in a way that pleases God in marriage. And in verse 10, he says this, but to the married, he's been speaking to those who are single, and he's been speaking of the benefits of singleness, of which there are many, particularly when times are difficult and when there's great persecution. 
But in verse 10, he says, but I say, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Very interesting. Is Paul making a distinction between what the Lord, and this would be Christ in this, in this case says, and what he says, that what Christ says is really good, what he says is his opinion? Absolutely not. In the sense that only his own opinion was, hey, we can take that or leave that. It is the, uh, when Paul says, not I, but the Lord, he's going to give us exactly Jesus' words on divorce and remarriage. But then he's going to go on to say, but not the Lord, but I say this other thing. That means he's under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It carries equal weight. Unless we want to just like cut out Paul's letters. That's his opinion. What Jesus said is really important. What Paul said isn't. Now, what any writer said that was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is vital. And remember that it's the inspired writers who tell us what Jesus said. Right? Jesus didn't write the Gospels. The inspired writers did, and they give us his words. Anyway, he says, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Well, we just read that in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19. Couldn't be any more clear. From the beginning, it has not been this way that they would separate. They're supposed to stay together. So he tells two believing spouses, you can't divorce. You are not to divorce. Right? And he's speaking to believers here. Verse 11, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, there's much discussion here. I don't think he's providing for certain cases necessarily when it is good for the wife to leave. I think he's speaking when she leaves and she shouldn't have. She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Those are only two choices. Two believing spouses, one chooses to leave, saying, look, she cannot be remarried and she must be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. The wife shouldn't leave. She shouldn't divorce her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. And it's clear that he's speaking to to married persons, because in the next verse he says, but to the rest I say. Well, who are the rest? The rest are those who are in mixed marriages. That is a marriage where there's a believer and an unbeliever. He says, to the rest I say, not the Lord. Woo. Well, why that? Well, because Jesus didn't speak to this. That's all he means there. Jesus spoke to one situation, one instance, and dealt with it fully. And he doesn't, he doesn't access all of Jesus' teaching on that either. He says, but now there needs to be some additional teaching on this because Jesus, when he was on earth, didn't leave us with this. So the Spirit of God has given me this to say to you about marriage, which causes us to be careful about reading one part of Scripture and saying that's all there is to say. Why? Because God is revealing further things through his Scripture. And again, although the words of Jesus, obviously, as the Son of God, the King, are weighty, they're not more weighty than the rest of Scripture. And Jesus didn't say everything about everything. He left that for the apostles to build on that foundation, really to build the rest of the foundation so that we might know how to, how to live. So anyway, Paul says, the Lord didn't speak to this. Jesus didn't speak to this when he was on earth. So I need to, because you need to know what to do. They're wrestling now. See, they had, they'd come to Christ, one or the other of the spouses, and they were like, now I'm here with this unbelieving spouse. I know the principle is that I'm not supposed to be united light with darkness. We, we're not like-minded. We don't have the same desire as far as who we serve, our master. Wouldn't it be better for me to divorce him? Shouldn't I put him away just out of hand or her out of hand because we're not properly united? So that's the first thing the Apostle Paul deals with. He says, no. So to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. It's the same thing. Send her husband away, divorce. He's just using a different word for it. 
Right? You can't say, well, that's just something different in the next verse. It's both divorce. Neither one is allowed simply offhand, simply because of the fact that they are, there's believer, unbeliever. They're not allowed to say, hey, you're done. Here's the divorce papers. You're an unbeliever. I can't live with you. Now, this is a much more complex situation than you might, than you might think. You need to read the whole chapter. They weren't simply concerned, well, I just don't want to live with that unbeliever anymore. They were concerned about being unholy. Here I am united with an unbeliever living in my own home. What's going to happen to my children? They're going to be impacted by this unbeliever. And if you know friends who, if you have friends or you are in this situation where you're living with an unbeliever, you understand the, the anxiety that comes upon you when you consider how that unbeliever is going to impact your kids. Because there's some very real and very deep matters here that we don't have time to get at. So, you know, it's not just like they're saying, I always want a divorce for any reason. No, they were concerned that maybe they themselves were being unholy. Even in the sexual union, being united to an unbeliever, maybe that's not even godly. And then with the idea that you have children that are being impacted by this unbeliever on a regular basis, they were concerned. But here Paul says, marriage is so strong, even for believer, unbeliever, that if that unbeliever says, look, I'm willing to live in this as a marriage. That is, I, I, I understand as far as an unbeliever can, that this is a commitment that I've made to you. And the basic commitments that are involved there, if they, says, if they say, I'm willing, then you don't divorce them. You allow that to remain. You allow that to continue. For the unbelieving husband, here, and here's where he's, he's, he's dealing with one of the issues that I mentioned, the idea about the children. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean. They would be, he's saying. But God has called us, excuse me, um, although, but now they are holy. However, verse 15 gives the second exception. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Right? And again, the issue here is that they would, they would be, be abandoning the marriage and, and entering into divorce. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister, that would be the believer, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Here's a clear exception or a clear time when divorce is sanctioned by God. In this case, in this particular instance, it is not the believing par- party who is initiating the divorce, although we'll talk about that in just a moment. But nonetheless, if it were always true that any divorce was displeasing in the sight of God and that it caused a, a rupture to the degree that God would be unpleased with either spouse, then the clear teaching here would be you can't let them go. You've got to try to make them stay. Don't let them dissolve this. Do whatever you can. If there was never a time when God said it is acceptable to dissolve a marriage, it is in this case because you have believer and unbeliever, and they, if the unbeliever is not willing to live there, there can't be peace because he is, he is again, he's fundamentally oriented towards different things. He doesn't love Christ. It goes on to say then in, in verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O oh husband, whether you will save your wife? This seems to be, have been their primary concern. Notice it doesn't say save the marriage. It says, how do you know that you, they will come to Christ? That would have been a primary reason to stay in the marriage, right? I want, this to, I want to keep them close. I want to be able to continue to bring them to Christ. In fact, the very highest reason possible to keep the marriage together, that you might be able to continue to witness and see someone come to Christ, he goes, look, you don't know that that's going to happen. There is no guarantee that you're going to lead them to Christ. And so if they, if, they're, if they will not agree to live as a married person with you, 
to live under the covenants of the basic covenants that even unbelievers understand about marriage, you let them go because you can't determine that you're going to bring them to Christ and they're going to destroy the family. That's what God has called us to peace. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.